today we are concluding the series. This is the dramatic conclusion uh, of the Blameless Project series that we've been in over the last several weeks. Uh, we've looked at what blame is, why we do it, how we can do it less. We've provided resources like the great books that are at the resource table, like bracelets we can wear that remind us uh, of the, the fact that blame permeates a lot of our lives. It's something we want to do less. So far, we've looked at sort of the different directions that blame gets pointed. We, we tend to blame our circumstances or blame other people or even blame God. And today we are looking at sort of the final, the last direction that blame is often pointed. Blame toward ourselves. In week one, Chris said these things. He said that at the heart of blame is fear. And he said that, that blame is an attempt to cover up and protect ourselves And both of those statements are true, and both of them make sense, but how does it work on the issue of self-blame? If blame comes as a product of fear, a need to protect ourselves, and one of our greatest tendencies is to blame ourselves, it seems like a loop, right? We're afraid, so we blame ourselves in order to protect ourselves. If blame is this sort of monkey-brained reaction from a place of fear, and it's actually not all that accurate, and nor is it all that helpful, and in fact, more often than not, it's actually damaging, then imagine the destructive loop we can get in when we're caught in sort of this idea of self-blame. And today we're asking this question, what if we blamed ourselves less and became less fearful? In order to answer that question, we're going to return sort of back to the beginning of the series. In fact, back to the, the beginning of the story. Back to Genesis chapter 1. In Genesis chapter 1, we see that God creates and repeatedly looks at his creation and each time says, It is good. The ocean is good. The sky is good. The land is good. The plants and the animals and everything in creation is good. And then God says these words, Let us make human beings in our image to be like us. And when God, who exists in community, exists as the Trinity, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, when God looks at the humans he's created, he says, it is very good. That is the story of God. That is the story that God is speaking over creation. That is the heart of God. It is very good. But then chapter 3 happens. There's this tree, and God had said, eat any fruit from any tree, eat as much fruit as you want from any tree in the garden, but not from this one tree. But a serpent came and told a very different story. He said, did God really say? The serpent tried to convince them that they weren't enough, even though God had said, very good. Tried to convince them that they could be like God, even though God said, let us make them in our image to be like us. Tried to convince them that they could have it all if they would just eat the fruit from that one tree. Chapter 3, verse 6. The woman was convinced. She saw that the tree was beautiful and its fruit looked delicious. And she wanted the wisdom that it would give her. So she took some of the fruit and ate it. And then she gave some to her husband who was with her and he ate it too. It's a story that most of us, whether we've grown up in the church or not, have heard all of our lives. And typically it's... It's taught as sort of a story about disobedience, which certainly it is. Or it's taught as the story of how sin entered the world. And certainly that is true as well. But I think it's more than that. Next verse, verse 7. At that moment, their eyes were opened. And suddenly, 
and they suddenly felt shame at their nakedness. So they sewed fig leaves together to cover themselves. It says that the moment their eyes were open, they felt shame at their nakedness, at their vulnerability. And their immediate response to feeling that shame was to sew together fig leaves to cover themselves, to cover their shame. Yes, sin entered the world, but perhaps more importantly, shame and then fear entered the world. The power of sin is shame and fear. And in this earliest story of humanity, we see that shame is at the heart of fear. As we learned at the beginning of the series, fear is at the heart of blame. But even deeper, shame is at the heart of fear. Blame, as destructive as it is, blame is a result. Blame is a symptom, a byproduct, a response to an underlying issue, an underlying condition that has affected each of us. Every relationship we have, I would argue every decision we have made since our very first parents experienced shame for the first time. There's a place to write this in your notes. We won't experience blame less unless we experience shame less. Blame and shame go hand in hand. Blame and shame feed one another. We call it the shame blame cycle. When blame turns inward, it becomes shame. And we experience shame and we turn that outward, it looks like blame. And it just feeds itself on and on in an infinite loop. Someone once said this, shamed people shame people. And I think there's truth in that statement, but I would modify it slightly. I would say shamed people blame people. I like that speaker. When we experience shame in our lives, we spit it right back out as blame to defend ourselves, to redirect that shame that we feel. In this series, we've referenced Brene Brown several times, who's an amazing author. Many of us know her probably from her TED Talks and from the books that she's written. But I didn't know until I did this study that her start was actually as a researcher on the subject of shame. She spent years researching shame. She often, she actually calls shame the master emotion that dictates so much of what we feel. She says there are three things about shame. She says shame is about fear, blame, and disconnection. Shame is all about the fear of being found out, of being found wanting, of being exposed, of being found to be not enough to face all of life. And as a response, we blame. And in blaming, we disconnect ourselves from the most fundamental relationships in our lives with each other, with God, and foundationally with who we are. Shame and blame disconnect us. Brown also points to three attributes of shame. She says we all have it. We're all afraid to talk about it. And the less we talk about shame, the more control it has over our lives. She adds, shame is something we all experience. And while it feels as if shame hides in our darkest corners, it actually tends to lurk in all the familiar places, including appearance and body image, family, parenting, money and work, health, addiction, sex, aging and religion. To feel shame is to be human. Wow. Shame, the master 
emotion. This isn't in my notes, but it you know, occurred to me. We oftentimes think of shame as the result of the affair. But we rarely think that shame was at the cause and the root of the affair. Shame impacts so much our behaviors and the way we think and the way we act and the way we believe the world and see the world. Brown also points out that shame is not the same as guilt. Guilt is the normal, healthy response that we feel when we hurt someone, when we do something bad. Shame, by contrast, is this lingering, sickening feeling that tries to rewrite our story, to tell us a new story about who we are. Guilt says, I did something bad. Shame says, I am bad. I think we see this most clearly as parents, as in my own kids, because I'm a bad parent. <laughs> There's the shame right there. <laughs> this last week, I took my kids, uh, my son, Ben, who's 10, and a bunch of his friends to the mall last weekend. And, you know, they're 10 going on 11. And 10 going on 11 means they desperately want to be teenagers. They desperately want to do teenage things. And so the entire time we're at the mall, they were saying, Dad, can we just go off by ourselves? Can we just go wander the malls by ourselves? And I'm like, no, you can't because you're 10. And you're not old enough to just wander the mall without an adult. I'm not even sure that's legal, which I use that excuse a lot, actually, in parenting. I'm not even sure that's legal. <laughs> but I told them, you know, if things go well, at the end of the day, you know, maybe you can have some time where it's just you guys, and I'll let you guys just be in the mall by yourselves. And so at the end of the day, things went great. They did really, really well. They mostly stayed with me. They, they stopped asking to be alone, and they pulled very few pranks on any of the store workers. So at the end of the day, we were by Caribou, and I said, I'll buy you guys each a drink, and then you guys can have this last time together. We'll meet back here in 20 minutes. So I bought them all a coffee, and that cost way more than I was thinking it would when I said I'd buy you coffee. And they went, and about five minutes into it, I got a message from Ben, and he said, hey, I found this sweatshirt that I've been looking for all day. Can you meet me at such and such a store? And I said, sure. And so I, I go out in the mall, and it wasn't a far walk because I, they didn't realize I was just following them, like one <laughs> store away, watching. Anyway, sorry, Ben. Um, <laughs> and Ben met me out in the main part of the mall. I thought, that's strange. Like... Uh, I thought we were going to meet at the store and, and we started going to a store and he followed, but a little bit behind and we walked into the store and he followed, but a little bit behind. And I saw the Coca-Cola sweatshirt up on the shelf. And I thought, Oh, that's gotta be it. So I walked to it. I turned to Ben. I said, I'm not, is this the one you were looking for? And I, I failed to notice the woman that was down on the ground, cleaning up a big mess that was on the ground. And she turned to Ben and with just hate in her face, she said, thanks for making a huge mess and then running out of here. And apparently what had happened, I did ask Ben if I could share this story. Apparently what had happened is he had his coffee and he set it down on the ground and he was trying to reach for the sweatshirt and it got knocked over. We don't know how it got knocked over, but it made a huge mess. And, and now this woman is here and it's angry and I have no idea what to do in this moment. I wasn't prepared for this. I thought I was just going in to see a sweatshirt. <laughs> you know what I'm saying? And in an instant, my monkey brain took over. I was embarrassed. I was angry. I, I looked at this moment. I, you know, I was ashamed that this had happened and that Ben had spilled this drink. And I was ashamed of the fact that I had ever thought it was a good idea to give coffee to a 10 year old and then set him loose in the mall. <laughs> like there were multiple levels to my shame in this moment. And I'd like to think that having gone through this bootless, uh, this, uh, blameless boot camp, that somehow I would have reacted perfectly in that moment, but I didn't, I didn't yell, but I'm pretty sure and Ben can attest that my face yelled. <laughs> The look I gave him yelled, and in a very quiet, calm voice, I said, see, 
This is exactly why you can't be alone in the mall. This is exactly what I said would happen. I trusted you. I won't make that mistake again. Whoa. Shame had a story to tell Ben. You see, you're not good enough. You see, you can't do it. See, you can't be trusted. Shame had a story to tell Ben, and I jumped right in telling that story. But shame had a story for me as well. See, you're a lousy parent. What kind of parent does that? What kind of parent gives their kid coffee and then sends him into a store? You don't even bring coffee into the store yourself. Why would you do that? There are these cycles of shame. And Ben and I spent the rest of the afternoon just feeling kind of gross. And we had a great conversation later on in the day. We worked through some of those things and he was able to express what he felt in that moment. But what he felt in that moment was largely shame. That's the mechanics of shame. That's how shame works. There are so many great books. Like I said, we have a couple of them out at the, the, the lobby, out at the resource table about what shame is and the psychological and emotional toll that it takes on us. And those books and those resources can be so helpful. But it was followers of Christ, as followers of God, who believe in this creation narrative, who believe that there is a God who's writing all of this. We believe that shame is about more than just psychology. Shame is about more than just some prehistoric monkey brain. It's more than just the wiring we have. Kurt Thompson, in his book, The Soul of Shame, which is great, it's one of the books is out there, he says this, to know how shame works, its mechanics can be helpful, but it's not enough to know this apart from knowing the story in which it occurs. For if we believe we live in a world created by God, whose character and acts are found in the pages of the Bible, then shame is no mere artifact. It has purpose in a larger narrative, an interpersonal neurobiological instrument, a tool that is intentionally and skillfully used to distract and disrupt the story that God is telling. Throughout this series, we've been introduced, we've met a character that has been recurring multiple times throughout this story. In week one, he was called the serpent. And he said, did God really say? Throughout scripture, this, this character is given many, many names. He's called the serpent. He's called Lucifer, the deceiver, the prince of darkness, the father of lies. Last week in the story of Job, he was called the Satan, which some of you remember. But in Hebrew, that is not a proper name. It's a title. It's a, it's, a, it's a job description. He is the Satan. And, and the word is actually more often uh, translated as the adversary. It's not a name. It's a job description. But did you know that that word is often, in fact, more often translated as the accuser, the blamer? In the New Testament, that same character is given another name, and it's used 38 times in the New Testament. He's called Diabolos. It's a Greek word that means the accuser, the slanderer. It means to unjustly criticize, to hurt, malign, and condemn in order to, for the purpose of severing a relationship. Diabolos, it's not a name. It's a job description. It's what he does. Anyone know who this is? <laughs> This is Dean Winters. And for years, he has played this character, this role of mayhem in the Allstate commercials, creating chaos or mayhem in the lives of people and then warning them that if they get cut-rate car insurance, they may pay more when mayhem happens, right? And his last line in every single one of the commercials is always the same. So get Allstate and be better protected from mayhem like me. 
He is mayhem, but it's not a name. It's a job description. Similarly, the accuser's job is to accuse us. It's what he does. And it's not his name. It's a job description. So when we feel shame, we are encountering that character. We are encountering the accuser, the blamer. Thompson compares this, this shame person, this character, sort of like a personal attendant in our lives that he calls the shame attendant. And like a personal attendant, that attendant is always there, always ready, always offered, willing to offer advice, and always willing to speak into our lives. But not to help, but to accuse, to misdirect, to disrupt, to speak into, this, to, into our lives these lies that have the purpose of severing relationships. He says that within each of us, there are essentially two voices speaking into our lives at all times. The voice of the Holy Spirit, who is saying, remember, you are my sons, you are my daughters, you are my beloved, you are very good. And the voice of the accuser, the father of lies, who's trying to tell a very different story. The shame attendant is trying to present to us a very different story than the story of God. The Apostle Paul uses very similar language in the book of Romans when he's describing that war within himself. He says this, I've discovered this principle of life, that when I want to do what is right, inevitably I do what is wrong. I love God's law with all my heart, but there's another power within me that it's at war with my mind. This power makes me a slave to the sin that is still within me. Oh, what a miserable person I am. Who will free me from this life that is dominated by sin and death? I love Paul. You know, what a different story this is than the story of the Pharisee Saul that he had previously been. The Pharisee would work so hard to appear justified in everything he did, who appeared righteous in everything that he did, who presented himself as always put together, always right. Shame would love for us to live in those sorts of religious circles where we always have to appear like we have it all together. Like everything we do is justified. But Paul throws all of that out the window. He says, yeah, I keep screwing up. I don't get it. I don't understand myself. I want to do what's right, and I keep not doing it. It makes me crazy. I love that Paul is just being real. He's just calling it like he sees it. He's he's just bringing all of himself, the good, the bad, the ugly, all of it, and laying it on the table. And I got to think some of his original readers of this letter would have been like, oh my gosh, me too. (laughs) I do that too. I'm exactly like that. And... I'm guessing some of his original readers weren't all that thrilled with this level of candor. We don't like our leaders sometimes to get that real, especially our religious leaders. We are more comfortable when everyone appears to have it all together. But I think maybe that's part of Paul's point. I think part of what Paul is modeling here for us is the importance of being willing to, of allowing ourselves to be vulnerable with one another as a spiritual discipline. And science and psychology are now confirming what Paul knew 2,000 years ago. You'd think the answer to shame, because it's a product of fear, you'd think the answer to shame would be, you know, to double down on our efforts, to to work on building up our self-esteem, to work on, you know, re-buttressing our fortresses. I'm not, that wasn't in my notes. That we would work harder towards sewing together the fig leaves that protect us. But the answer that we see in the biblical narrative is not that. 
the answer that we see is, and increasingly the answer that psychology points to is in fact vulnerability, which is counterintuitive. Kurt Thompson says, our vulnerability is simultaneously both the source of all that's broken in our world as well as its redemption. Thompson points out that while Brown and others have discovered how learning to be vulnerable can help us flourish as human beings, he says vulnerability is more than just a new trend in psychology. Vulnerability is at the very core of the Bible's story of who God is and who we are to be. Although we may now be discovering vulnerability's helpfulness, historically it has remained unrelated to any ultimate understanding within our larger story as human beings. But the biblical narrative tells a different story. One so different, in fact, that in seeing the place of vulnerability in the pages of the Bible, we cannot help but be amazed at its place and purpose. This invitation to vulnerability is modeled to us throughout all of Scripture. It's right there in the beginning. It's right there in the creation story. The creation story is, of a, is the story of a God who makes himself vulnerable. A God who says, let us make them in our image to be like us. That is, in a way, vulnerable. A God who wired us to be in relationship with one another and relationship with each other. That is vulnerable. A God who then gave us both the capacity to and the means to reject him. That's vulnerable. In this story, there's this tree. And I, I remember even as a kid wrestling with that. Like, wouldn't it have just been easier if God didn't put the tree in the garden? Like, why the tree? And why put it right there in the middle? Why point it out? It's like in the science fiction movies where they put the self-destruct button right in the middle of the dashboard. And you're like, why would they do that? You know they're going to accidentally push it. I think that tree is evidence that God chose to make himself vulnerable to his creation. Chose to give us, as I said, both the capacity and the means to reject him. That's vulnerable. The Bible is the story of a God who time and time again is faithful to his people, even though they time and time again fail to be faithful to him. The Bible is the story of a God who makes heroes of men like Hosea, who pursue and love their wife time and time again, when she time and time again prostitutes herself out as a picture of who God is in Hosea. It's a story of a God who takes on flesh in the person of Jesus, who becomes vulnerable, physically vulnerable, yes, but also psychologically and emotionally and relationally vulnerable. A God who allowed himself to be accused Blamed, mocked, beaten, scorned, and ultimately killed. The crucifixion story is at its core a story of vulnerability. We know that for Rome, crucifixion was as much about shame as it was about execution. Typically, prisoners who were going to be crucified would be stripped completely naked. So as they hung there, they were completely exposed, completely uncovered, completely feeling the shame of everyone gazing upon them as they died. That's a different picture than we typically see in our crucifixes. It was as much about shame as what it's about execution. But Hebrews 12 says us this, tells us this, for the joy set before him, Christ endured the cross, scorning its shame. Jesus chose 
Jesus allowed himself to be executed in this most humiliating way in order to scorn the accuser's shame. And to that, Paul says, run the race with endurance, keeping your eyes fixed on Jesus. So that's just a glimpse, just a small, tiny nugget of what vulnerability looks like in Scripture. What does it look like for us to actually do this? What does it look like for us to scorn shame, to experience shame less so that we might blame less? I can tell you that it's not easy. It's not as easy as simply telling yourself not to be shamed. In fact, telling ourselves we shouldn't feel shame actually makes us more shamed. Like we're shamed for feeling shame, right? I can tell you that it's also not just saying, you know, everything's fine. Everything in my life is fine. It's okay if I'm insert blank. Guilt is an appropriate response when we do bad things. So how do we move beyond shame to this place of experiencing restoration and healing. I think everything in our wiring wants us to blame in response to fear and shame. Vulnerability does not come naturally to us. It takes practice. That's a place to write this in your notes. We can retrain our brains to become less fearful by practicing vulnerability, by actively making the kinds of choices that God made to practice vulnerability in our own lives. But you have to know Practicing vulnerability means taking risks, and we need to know those risks. Vulnerability, for instance, means risking being exposed, feeling naked, losing the fig leaves that we've worked so hard to sew together to protect ourselves. Shame and blame are based on this fear of being exposed, and so vulnerability counterintuitively leads into that shame, scorns that shame, and proactively exposes ourselves. And that's scary. That's risky. That feels very naked. That's another thing about this creation story that I've always kind of wondered about. Like, why naked? What a weird way to end chapter two. Like, they were naked and unashamed. I'm like, naked and awkward. <laughs> like, right? Thompson says this. He says, the vulnerability of nakedness is the antithesis of shame. Naked and unashamed is the ultimate picture of vulnerability. And shame can't stand that. Choosing vulnerability for us then means choosing to stop trying to cover ourselves up. We spend our whole lives trying to sew together fig leaves. Fig leaves like our careers and our success, like our houses and our cars, our social media pages. The addictions that we use to numb ourselves from the shame that we feel. For, for me, humor is one of my major fig leaves. Fig leaves. I use sort of self-deprecating and sometimes sarcastic and dark humor as a way of, of laughing, of covering it up. I see some people laughing in the back because they know that's true. How about you? What are your fig leaves? What would it look like for you to stop trying to sew these fig leaves together and allow yourself to actually be vulnerable, to be exposed, to feel naked and unashamed again as in creation? You see, if you're willing to be exposed, you risk being known. Risk being known not for who you want people to think you are, the carefully crafted, expertly curated version of us that we put on Instagram and Snapchat and Facebook and our job resumes, but known for who you actually are. Are there people in your life 
with whom you can bring all of you, your real self and your whole self, to be fully known. The good, the bad, the ugly, the warts and all. Thompson says, the healing of shame begins and ends in the experience of being known. A biblical notion that begins in the heart of God is offered to humans in Genesis and reaches its culmination on Good Friday. Being known, being truly known, involves presenting our real selves and our whole selves. Last weekend, uh, we had this event, Daycation. It was a women's event, so I didn't go because I'm a boy. But it was led by Laura Sedensky, who's the wife of Chris, uh, our senior pastor. And Laura oversees women's ministry here. And she tells the story of the very first time we had a women's event at ECC 12 years ago. And I absolutely love the story. She started off the day by putting up a slide on the screen and just leaving it there with no explanation. Just kind of let it get uncomfortable. See, because the slide was a picture of their bedroom as it actually is. And apparently there were like piles of clothes and laundry and boxes. She said it was so bad that basically you, you had to kind of like side shimmy to get down the aisles to get to the bed or to get to the closet. And she just put that picture up there and let it hang up there. And essentially what she then said as she explained it is, this is who we want to be as the women of ECC. Not slobs, but women who are going to be real, who are going to present their real lives, even the messy parts that we want to hide. Let's not perpetuate the pressure to pretend our lives are perfect. Let's get it out there in the open. And it set a tone for the kind of community that we're trying to build here. But that's risky. That feels pretty naked. What will people think? But it's an exposing that potential shame. And when we do that, we starve shame of the oxygen that it needs in order to live. Again, Thompson says this. To be known necessarily means that we're willing to expose each part of us, especially those parts that feel most hidden and that carry the most shame. Those parts of us that feel most broken and we keep most hidden are the very parts that most desperately need to be known by God so as to be loved and healed. For only in those instances where our shamed parts are known do they stand a chance to be redeemed. So I'm not going to ask you all to bring, you know, bedroom photos next week that we can put up on the screen. But what would it look like in your life to begin, even in small ways, to foster the kind of relationships where you could bring your whole self, your real self, even the ugly parts, even the most broken parts, and be known? Shame is not something we can fix in the privacy of our own minds. The accuser would love for us to think we could. We can't. This has to be worked out in community. And I think sometimes church is the hardest place to do that kind of work, to do that kind of real, right? Because church is the place where we are most likely to come and try to look like we got it all together, like we're holding it all together, to look the more like Saul than Paul. Practicing vulnerability Involves becoming a community of people where people can bring their whole selves, their real selves, and be reminded of the greater story, the realer story. Be reminded of who God says we are, not who the accuser, the slanderer tells us we are. Next point. Practicing vulnerability involves being willing to risk exposing our shame. Thompson says, exposure is the very thing 
that shame requires for healing. Shame wants to remain hidden. And for the most part, given our own predilections, we would love for it to stay hidden. Nobody wants to talk about shame. You're kind of uncomfortable that I'm talking about shame right now. But if we do that, the accuser, the prince of darkness is thrilled. He would love for us to keep our shame in the dark. But practicing vulnerability means exposing our shame, those deepest, darkest, most broken parts to the light through confession where healing can begin to happen. Throughout this series, we've talked about having the where are you conversations, the kind of conversations that God had in the garden with Adam and Eve saying, where are you? These relational connection conversations that we can have with a person with whom we are in conflict. Well, here I think there's a similar conversation, but I'm calling it the here's where I'm at conversation. It's the response to that question. It's going to a friend, to a trusted friend and saying, there are areas in my life where I feel like shame is winning. There are areas in my parenting and my career, in my internet life where shame is winning. That's where I'm at. Practicing vulnerability means sharing your story with a trusted friend who's earned the right to hear your story and calling out the places where you feel shame. This is kind of a corny rhyme, but I think it's memorable. We name shame to tame shame. We've got to take these things that want to exist in our dark closets but actually exist in our everyday life and put them on the table where we can name them, talk about them, address them, and begin to heal them. And I don't know what those things are for you. I'm guessing perhaps you do. I'm guessing that perhaps even in this series and in these conversations, there are these things that are beginning to come to mind, these things that you realize have been impacting you and these burdens that you have been carrying for years, these shames that have infected every area of your life and remain hidden these areas of blame and shame and regret that are just taking over and need to come out, not just for your sake, but for the sake of others too. When we confess to one another, we give permission to others to confess to us, permission to not be perfect and to have it all together, to not be Pharisees. We need that kind of permission. When we confess to one another, acknowledging our shame, it resonates with the shame that all of us carry. When Laura was willing to 12 years ago, and then again last weekend, put up that picture of her messy bedroom and say, boy, I thought 12 years later I would have had this fixed, but I still don't apparently. There were probably a lot of women in that room that went, oh, I'm not the only one. We give permission to others to bring all of themselves, not so that we stay there, not so that these things can't be addressed, but so that they can actually begin to be addressed and healed completely lost my place (laughs) with confession an opportunity is given for exposure and healing in our lives but also in the life of our listeners and that is terminally threatening to shame last point there's not a fill-in for this but there's probably still space on your page to write this finally and most importantly we need to risk bringing our shame to god Brene Brown, in The Gifts of Imperfection, says these words. We have to own our story and share it with someone who's earned the right to hear it. Someone whom we can count on to respond with compassion. Shame hates it when we reach out and tell our story. 
It hates having words wrapped around it. It can't survive being shared. The most dangerous thing to do after a shaming experience is to hide or bury our story. When we bury our story, the shame metastasizes. Shame is the cancer that happens when guilt goes wrong. Shame shame is the cancer that happens after the exposure to the radiation. The analogy breaks down. Brown loves to use that phrase, share your story with someone who's earned the right to hear it, with somebody whom you can count on to respond with compassion. As we end this series, as we try to ask that question, how do we experience shame less so that we might blame less? I want to present to you that there is no one who's a better candidate for that than Jesus Christ. The very God who took on flesh, who bore our sin and shame, who went to the cross to scorn that very shame, to tell the accuser, you don't get to win. Your story is not the real story. There's no one who's earned the right to hear your story like Jesus has. There's no one that we can count on to respond with love and compassion and grace and healing like Jesus. The God who created you and who declared to you in his first story, his primary story, you are good, you are my sons and daughters, is asking just like he asked Adam and Eve, where are you? He wants to find you and he wants to be found. He wants to take all of you, your whole self, your real self, even your warts and your messy bedrooms and your bad parenting, your shameful self, maybe even those most hidden, most broken parts. He wants to take those and to begin to restore and replace and renew and bring new life and forgiveness into those places, to bring his light into those places that the voice of shame, the voice of the accused, the liar can be silenced so that we can be freed from the power of sin, which is shame and fear. I want to invite you to give your shame to God. Maybe for the first time, or maybe for the one millionth time, as in my case. To give it to God and say, God, I am done carrying this burden. I need it to be lifted. God, I know that I have done things that are wrong. God, help me to not let that guilt turn into this recurring cancer that is shame. Allow me to experience your healing, your restoration, your hope. God is inviting you into this story that he is speaking over you, inviting you into a story in which you are loved, cherished, a child of God. Are you willing to have that, here's where I'm at conversation with God? Maybe for the first time or maybe for the one millionth time. To just be honest, to risk being known, risk being exposed, risk having your shame exposed so that healing might begin. Let me pray for us. Jesus Christ, we are so grateful for your grace, for this invitation that you've extended to bring all of ourselves, even and maybe especially the broken parts the failures that we have felt, but that have been rehearsed in our minds over and over and over again all of our lives. 
the shame that has been passed from parent to child for generations and continues to infect every relationship that we have. We see that not to blame our parents because we've all done it, but to acknowledge that this is a a disease that sin has caused in this world. God, right now, I pray that you would speak into our lives. Give us a vision, a picture of your way, of your story. Holy Spirit, speak to us in this room, particularly those for whom they don't know you. They don't trust you, particularly for those who have never experienced what it is to touch grace and to have grace touch you. Holy Spirit, speak. Bring healing. Let them hear your voice say, where are you, my child? And then empower their response. We ask it in the name of Jesus. Amen.